Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of An Amber A Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Fisher, and I am here today with Jana. Jana, how do you pronounce your last name? Jamail. Jamail. Jana Jamail. And she is um, on Instagram as Heard It From Rose. And she is a great, um, you know, fellow nutritionist. She focuses on cardiology and heart health in her practice. And so we're going to talk a lot today about that. And then just also about both being nutritionists with little babies and um, the balancing of all that stuff. And yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. So it should be a good one. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Of course. I'm excited that you're here. So um, what we were talking about before I started recording is um, how one of Jana's goals is to be in a cardiologist's office, actually providing nutrition services to their patients. Because what were you saying about wait times with procedures and everything? Yeah. So if you have, it's not just if you have like high blood pressure or high cholesterol, but it's say that you actually have blockage and you need a stint or you need to go in and actually have a procedure, some wait times can be six to eight months. And if you don't change anything that you're doing over that course, I mean, there are risks of heart attack in that amount of time. And so I was saying that I would love to find, you know, this open-minded cardiologist that would love to work with me and then would love to actually have me work with some of those patients, change their diet. And over that six to eight month period, that could even reduce their need for procedures or surgeries and even medication. Um, but yeah, I would take a very open-minded cardiologist. Yeah. And, (laughs) and so I think, you know, what's cool about, about that is that I actually do think, I mean, maybe this is just because I, I'm so involved in the functional medicine world now, but I feel like this is changing. I just actually, it's interesting that you and I are talking today because earlier this week, I finished up a lecture for my certification on, it was a cardiometabolic lecture. So it was all about, um, it was mostly about insulin resistance and heart disease, uh, which of course there's a lot of, you know, overlap with that and everything and diet and and all that. And they were talking about, you know, statins and um, cholesterol numbers and how these things really, it's like almost as if you're like, when you look at somebody's cholesterol, for example, the LDL, it's not as simple as like LDL is bad and HDL is good. It depends on the molecule size of the LDL um, and all that. You probably, I don't work a lot with, with cardiovascular stuff. So you probably know a lot more about me. So maybe you could explain some of that to us. Um, But I know there's a lot of overlap with my clientele with that as well, because like when we're working on fertility and hormone issues, um, especially PCOS, there's that underlying insulin resistance And um, there's also a higher risk for, you know, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, those things kind of all go together with that metabolic syndrome. So, um, so yeah, I, (laughs) to your point about like 
I think there are some, some really cool cardiologists out there who are really interested in, in those over plays of nutrition and, and, um, and heart disease, but there really should be a lot more for how much we know there should be a lot more, but you know, the, the thing I have found, so almost all of my clients are heart disease clients in some way, shape or form. They have high triglycerides, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. One of my first clients, when I started doing this, he came to me and said, my doctor said, I'm going to have a heart attack in a year if I don't make a change. And he was just panicking. And I told him, if I'm not panicking, you're not panicking. We can do this. Like, it's fine. And I put him on a plant-based diet. And in three months, he was off his stats. Wow. And in six months, he was off all of his blood pressure medication. He was like, you gave me my entire life back. And he was like, I just don't understand why didn't my cardiologist know this, which his cardiologist did know to have him call me, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But I said, cardiologists don't take nutrition courses, but they have to go to seminars from pharma, like from pharmaceutical companies and they get paid if they put you on a statin. So you're going to take nutrition where you get nothing, or are you going to get paid $5,000 per statin prescription? It's, it's just incentive, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been interesting over the years, just seeing how there's so much medication people can be put on and it's just, just start eating your greens and just decrease oh, wow. some of those animal products. And you'll be amazed at how your heart just bounces back so fast. Isn't that so funny too? I mean, just, just diet intervention makes such a big difference and just particularly the plant content of the diet, you know, because I, most of the clients that I'm working with, they're not, you know, in the space to go completely vegetarian or vegan, but we get them to where the balance of the diet is far more in favor of plants. It makes such a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think what's frustrating for me as, as a nutritionist too, is like people often ask me, like, okay, what, what do I need to do to, you know, to help with this or to help with that? And so often the answer is just eat more veggies, you know, but that's not fun and flashy and like, cool. It's not an awesome supplement to recommend or something. And it's not easy either. It's like simple, but it's not easy. So oftentimes people don't want to hear that, you know, but I think when they do finally open up to the idea that food does play a role in their health, it's just amazing what turnarounds we can see, um, particularly with medications. I get asked similar questions a lot about metformin because a lot of my clients are on metformin, you know, and, um, and it's similar to a statin in the sense that if you can take care of your diet and really, really work on your nutrient density, often you don't need metformin anymore because your body can do that. You know, that insulin resistance issue can, can be fixed yeah. with a lifestyle-based approach. I mean, so many of our chronic diseases these days are lifestyle-based diseases. Yes. But why are we not told that? You know, we're told it's genetic predisposition and you know, my dad had heart disease and my mom had heart disease. And so that's why I have heart disease. Like, yes. well, your dad and your mom and you, you probably all eat very similar as well. Yes. I tell, I tell people all the time. Yes. You can, you can have higher LDL naturally. Right. Sure. But heart disease in and of itself is not genetic. Your, what you put on your plate seems to be hereditary though, because we just learn this way and we continue but the second you break the cycle, 
things change. Yeah. And right. so I'm not surprised that people who eat the exact same way for years and years and generations all have the same problems. Yeah, right. It's not but, surprising. You know, capitalism doesn't well, work very well with fruits and vegetables, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I mean, unfortunately, and that's not the stuff that we subsidize yeah. the nation. Um, you know, we're subsidizing dairy products and corn. Yes. So, um, and the good, meat industry. so why we can't make a whole lot off of them. And mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot of systemic stuff that I don't talk a ton about. Um, just because I like, I don't know, it's, it's my f- number one focus is just to, when I get with a person to kind of change their mind and change the way that they, and I feel like people, when they, they, they fight for these things with their money, right? So mm-hmm. if they make changes, and I think you can see that over time as well, because the way people eat now versus when I was growing up, it's like, yes, in some ways, like the standard American diet has gotten worse, but the health kind of, um, what's the, what am I trying to to say that the health industry has kind of also gotten bigger and there's more products options. Like there's more gluten-free things available now. There's more, it's like people are kind of like more interested in that kind of stuff. There's whole foods at different places where there weren't. So I do see some positive changes with that. Um, and I feel like it's just like one person at a time, at least for me, but also there needs to be more, <laughs> there needs to be more like support in legislature and all that for all of these things too. Infrastructure change is, yes. is huge. I mean, the way that we grow fruits and vegetables needs to change, you know? And I think, I so, think people knew that if you just eat differently and, you know, I feel like that that's also a privilege, right? Not everyone in a socioeconomic situation can follow those guidelines. It's not, I mean, there's food deserts, you know, soda is cheaper than water. You know, it's not, that's yeah. not the same across the board, but I feel like if that education was out there that, you don't have to have type two diabetes. You don't have to have heart disease. You don't have to have obesity. A lot of these things are our own creation. I just wonder how many, how healthier as a country we would be. Yeah, we would be, I mean, it would be an amazing change. And I think you can see other, other countries at similar kind of economic development levels who don't eat the way we do. And uh, the quality of life there is better. You know, they have more, um, they don't spend as much money on healthcare, not nearly as much money on healthcare. And so they're able to provide more for their citizens. Um, they're able to, you know, have more leisure time, go more places because they have more expendable income because they're not spending it on medical bills. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's a whole systemic, uh, problem that they're not spending their money on pharmaceuticals. You know, it's just, and to your point too, about, about genetics, I hear that a lot in practice too. I have a lot, a lot of times people come in and they're like, well, you know, I have type two diabetes, but my, my family has, everyone in my family has it. And, and so it's, it's genetic for me. Um, genetics are not like the static thing that never changes or like you don't inherit a gene and then just automatically have that issue. You know, there's like 25% say is, is the genetic, the predisposition that you inherit. And then the other 75% is your environment. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, with type two diabetes, I mean, there's a lot of evidence for like different, um, 
you know, big stressors on the body happening, you know, in childhood or like in adulthood that can kind of trigger that process to, to start. It's not like, I mean, if it were truly, truly just genetic only, then you'd, you know, you'd have it from birth. Like you would just be born with type two diabetes, you know, and and you're not, you develop it. So, um, I don't know that I feel like that's such defeatist thinking too. It's like this, Mm -hmm my friend and I were talking about this the other day, this idea of like victimization and health where you almost take on your diagnosis as a part of your personality. And uh, it's very hard to separate yourself from that because it's, it's much easier to think, well, this is not, I don't play any role in this. Like I I have no responsibility here. So like, let me just continue on the way I am. But I think a lot of people do often reach the point where they're just sick of feeling bad and they're ready to kind of take some responsibility for the fact that like, Hey, yes, when you don't know better, you can't do better. Right. But now that you do, you have a responsibility to, to start taking better care of yourself. Well, and I think it's so interesting too, because like you said, if you had it, you'd be born with it. Right. And people don't understand that. Like, say you have cheese and blueberries in front of you, those turn on and off genes in your body, depending on what you eat. And you have more control than you realize gene expression happens all the time. It just depends on what you put in your body. And I, like I tell my clients all the time, like let's turn on the genes we need right now. Let's work on those things right now because they're not working in your favor. And so I just, I want people to know, like you have control over your health. It's not just, Oh, I have heart disease. I have it forever. Like you can take your life back. Yeah, you absolutely can. And um, I know that we live in this time and this society when saying things like that is almost considered to be um, like people don't like to hear that because they don't they're not ready for that. Like they're not ready to to own up to their piece in that puzzle. Um, But I feel like most of the people who are probably listening to this are sort of like, (laughs) yes, I'm ready. I'm ready to to do something um, about this situation. And uh, if that's you, you know, I'm glad that you're here and I hope that you're, you're getting some insight, but I think, uh, you know, obviously as nutritionists, we're always going to say that the single biggest thing that you can do for your health is to take better care of what you eat. Um, It just is kind of a huge advocate of sleep. That too. That's the second. Yeah. We thought we're always talking about, um, and functional medicine. It's like, it's, it's anything that you, you know, take in. Um, so food, uh, water obviously, and then, um, air, air quality is huge. I mean, we we don't even, I don't even get in a lot into like environmental toxins and stuff like that, which can be a whole, that's a whole other thing that I should probably do a podcast on sometime and then, um, sleep. Yeah. If you don't sleep at least eight hours, at least, I mean, yeah, especially if you're trying to to your health right there. I mean, just daylight saving. What happens during that time when you lose just one hour of sleep, like car accidents go up. I mean, heart attacks go up and it's one hour. But mm-hmm. it is more in that one day than over the entire course of the year. And is it, but why don't we talk about that? <laughs> I know. I, I don't know. I, I, I think too that there's all this pressure in 
at least American society to kind of like be such an achiever and to just wake up at the crack of dawn and exercise. And when I always tell my clients, I'm like, look, if it's between you getting eight hours of sleep and you waking up to exercise, I'd rather you sleep, honestly. Yes. And then just like, I don't know, stand up during the day more, you know, like, your body. <laughs> yeah, move, like, just like move around if that's all you can do. And I understand, okay, like, I am overwhelmed right now in my life. So I get how it's hard to fit that stuff in. And sometimes we're just we just have to be there. I don't think that that's like, a badge of honor, but I also understand that how it can happen. Uh, but yeah, you've got to sleep whenever I, I can't tell you how many people I see who are doing that whole wake up at 4am thing to exercise and then go to work. And they are seriously paying the consequences of that. They think they're doing the right thing. And it's just messing with so much with weight, water retention, hormones, mm-hmm. like stress responses, even things like food sensitivities and stuff start developing when your body's really stressed out. So, well, and it, I mean, it affects your brain later in life too. Like Ronald Reagan followed this. And I mean, he had early onset onset dementia later in life. Most of these people, it catches up with them later in life. Like truly sleep is the one thing you just have to have and you, you just can't give it up. Yeah. I don't think people under they, I, yeah, you're right. It's such a badge of honor to be like, I don't sleep. But to me, that's like, why would you do that to yourself? Why? I know. And, and if you're, if you do have trouble sleeping and you know, because a lot of people that I work with, they try, they sure try to get their eight hours or whatever, and they just can't. I mean, that's indicative of a deeper issue that needs to be addressed. You know, it's probably a cortisol imbalance or, um, I mean, it could be sleep hygiene, right? Like sometimes people don't realize that the blue light that they're exposed to at night, watching TV, being on their phone can, can be causing issues with that. But in a lot of cases, at least the people that I work with, it's kind of that deeper problem yeah. with either, um, you know, blood sugar, insulin balance, or, um, with uh, cortisol, like a, a reverse rhythm with cortisol. So if, if you are trying to get sleep and you can't, um, uh, you know, there are things that can be done to address that. Um, and you might want to think about working with a nutritionist on that. I think we don't think about sleep as being a nutrition issue, but it really kind of is. I know that with my clients, it's like, as soon as they start eating better, all of a sudden they're just like, they're exhausted. Like they're ready to sleep at night and they can sleep for hours. And I'm like, yes, give your, your body's trying to catch up. Let it, let it sleep nine hours if you need to, you know, just when you, you heal out, while so you many sleep. processed foods. Isn't it amazing how all of a sudden you can fall asleep and stay asleep? Yeah. Like, your blood sugar is not spiking in the middle of the night, yeah. waking you up. Like there's just, it's, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> Since I did, people obviously don't know this, but I did IUI and IDF and it did not work, but I've just had estrogen dominance ever since that. And I know when I haven't had enough progesterone on the second part of my cycle, because I get night sweats, I'm constantly waking up and I'm like, this is torture. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's not night. Like, I don't think people, and people who don't have night sweats, you probably don't understand that. It's not like you wake up sweating. It's like, you're in a pool and you yeah. don't know how you got there. <laughs> yeah. so you wake up and you're like literally soaked all over the yes. bed is it's gross. Yes. It's just very, it's an, it's an icky feeling. Like I have to get oh. up and change and I'm like, what, yes. what is happening? 
<laughs> I know, you know, to speak to that, because so many people who listen to me do have estrogen dominance. Um, you know, I mean, the whole reason that I ended up having to have the hysterectomy was because of estrogen dominance. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole reason I probably I had to go through IVF in the first place as well. Yes, we've yeah. been through IVF. Um, but, you know, all those hormones and all that synthetic stuff being pumped. I mean, it does, it, it can turn on those genes that we were talking about, you know, and if you are like me and you have, you were born with kind of a poorer than average detox capacity, it's like, you have to try extra hard to get that stuff out of there. Um, There's things that you can do for that, but it doesn't negate the fact that like, it's a bit more of a battle for sure Mm -hmm. than, than somebody else might have. Um, But yeah, I mean, so hormone replacement therapy has been a real, like, I was told because I didn't have a uterus anymore that I shouldn't be on progesterone. And um, I used to be on bioidenticals and really liked that and felt really great on it. And it was just like, I kept, I was like craving it. I would dream about taking, I had some extra like old pills and stuff. And I would dream about taking them. Like my body knew that that's what I needed. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, one night I just broke down and I was like, I'm just going to take some of this because I just need to see if I'm right. And I like, I slept for like 10 hours. I mean, I was just, my body was just craving that progesterone so badly. So yeah, I mean, we talk, I talk a lot about the connection between hormones and insomnia and anxiety. Mm. Estrogen is an upper, you know, it makes us very wired. Mm. And especially if we have too much in, in the right quantities, it gives us energy and makes us feel like vibrant and healthy and all those good things. So we, it's not that we don't want any at all, but the balance of it is so important. Yeah. And, and I, we know that we use a progesterone cream with vitamin D that has been life-changing for me. But I mean, yeah. I had some pretty bad moments. Like I had, I was on a progesterone cream before this one. I was a raging jerk on it. And I was like, what <laughs> is going on with me? And it wasn't until I was like, maybe I just, I had finished it and I couldn't find, I couldn't find it anymore. So my OB was like, oh, just try this one. And I was like, why am I not a psychopath anymore? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, here. I know it's amazing because especially if you're a person who who's prone to kind of estrogen dominance issues and it, they, we often talk about like with detoxification in particular, um, people who are kind of poor detoxers, they tend to have more of these kinds of hormonal issues because we're supposed to get that stuff out through the stool and whatever. And, and we just rebind it and reabsorb it. And anyway, it's a cycle. Um but if we're hypersensitive to medications, that's also a sign of having poor detox capacity. So it's interesting too, because hormone replacements and hormone therapies, they can affect you like different ways. Yes. If you're like, if you're hypersensitive to it, I'm the same way. Like when I went through IVF, they, you know how they like to put you on like birth control before they start. Yes. The one that they picked for me, oh my gosh, I'm not kidding. Made me like I actually was having suicidal thoughts. I had to get off of it. Oh my god. And I gosh. called the yes, and I called the doctor's office and I'm like, "Look, this is not like me. I'm not a person. I don't I I'm not trying to say this to be you know, to be, I don't know, to speak poorly of people who have depression, but I'm not a person with depression. I just I don't not struggle yet. with this." Um and 
since I have started this medication, I have been thinking about driving off the road mm-hmm. into the, like just into the abyss, you know? Um, that's not like me. I don't know where these thoughts are coming from. It was very weird. And they were like, no, birth control doesn't do that. <laughs> like, okay. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. So, I mean, if you could, if you Google it, it will tell you. <laughs> Literally Google it. Yeah. I mean, so many women have experiences with birth control causing really weird side effects. Like if you're sensitive to medications, especially a birth control that that's, you know, a higher dosage, like Yaz or Yasmin, you know, those, mm-hmm. they, they really mess with a lot of people. So I mean, I rage. like when they told me what? you have to go on birth control for IVF, I was like, yeah, we're not going to do that for the safety of society. Yeah. <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> like th- things will happen. <laughs> my husband yeah, was like, I, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? I'm like, you don't want to know. <laughs> it's bad. I know I'm very, I very, I, the only ones that ever like worked okay for me was like low estrin, like the lowest possible dose that you could get. That one was like, okay, I'm, I'm like still kind of like depressed, but not like, but not miserable, but same thing when I, when I had cancer, when I was younger, um, the treatment for that was to go on very high dose progestin therapy, mm-hmm. um, not progesterone, but synthetic progestin. And that's really the difference I found because the bioidentical progesterone I feel great on that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you take, if you're, if you're on quite a bit of it, it, it progesterone does have this, it, it's, it's kind of a muscle relaxant. So it makes you kind of, it makes you sleepy. It like, it can make you kind of tired. It can make you hungry. It can make you retain a little bit of water. Those kinds of things are normal. I mean, any woman who has a cycle is going to go through highs and lows in the, her cycle like that. And that's progesterone. Um, but the synthetics really just uh, did, was not the same. Yeah. When I was on, it was called Megase that I had to take. And when I was on that, Oh boy, <laughs> did not want to mess with me and like my hair was falling out and like oh, it was just yeah. it was uh it was an interesting experience yeah let's oh, say I, I know when I was done with that I was like please never again I don't ever want to take this again you know um I don't know so yeah <laughs> are, are, are so fun so yeah you um you guys adopted didn't you Yes, we adopted our son out of foster care. That's so cool. He's two and a half now, which is, if you know anything about foster care, he's a unicorn. That does not happen. You do not get yeah. his age. How so. old was he when you guys were, brought him, got him into the home? So <laughs> we found out about him when he was 16 months. And then, so the process typically is you find out, you get their file, you have 24 hours to say, we want to have a call with his team. So all the teams come together on a phone call. 
if you say, okay, yes, I want to do this. You have another 24 hours. And then they say, you still want to do it, right? And you say, yes. And then you typically go visit them for the first time. Then you come home, then you plan another time to visit. And then the third time they come stay in your home. And then you plan a day for them to come home forever. That is not what happened to us. <laughs> like our whole situation is just a unicorn situation. Found out about him. A week later, we got his file. The next day we had a call. We said, yes. And they said, great. This is a Monday. You need to be in Dallas Thursday. You're going to meet him. You're going to take him home forever Friday. And I was like, oh okay. <laughs> and they said his foster situation is breaking down, which is um, social worker, nice way of saying, get him out as soon as possible. So mm-hmm. I hung up on a Monday and just drove to Target. And I was like, I live here now. So just give me everything. Like My poor mom, my mom was so sweet. She goes, what's the theme for his room? I'm like, whatever is available at Target. <laughs> There's no theme. So I built his room in a day of like my husband's at work. I'm building a crib, a rocking chair, putting it all together. I have no clue what size clothes he wears. So I just bought them all (laughs) because I don't know. I didn't know what diaper size he wore. Like we had training in foster situations for five and older. And I'm getting a 17 month old. And I'm like, I, I have a niece who was this age at one time, but this is not the same. So So were you guys licensed for like five and up or were you licensed for like zero to five? We we aren't licensed for, because we didn't foster to adopt. His rights were terminated Mm, and was straight adoption. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, did I tell you that I used to, I used to be a foster parent trainer, foster and adoptive. So you understand what I meant? Like his foster system, his foster situation is breaking down. Breaking down. Yeah. That's a nice way of saying like, yikes, uh, this isn't working out. We're going to have to move him somewhere else. If you don't take him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which you don't want to do with a child that young, of course, because any movement before three years of age is like majors. So as few moves as possible, was he in any other, um, was that his, the only home that he that was been his in only home and thank God, but he was, he was in a home with nine other adults oh. and three other children. So when he came to us, he's like, well, this is the most boring house on the dog, but he has definitely adapted to his home and the luxury of his home now very quickly. Yeah. I'm sure he has. Like I, I, I set him up on the couch to watch Daniel Tiger on a flat screen with popcorn. And he's just like laid out, like living. I'm like, you're fine. <laughs> like you're good. <laughs> so did, so did you guys like, did you go through a private agency or did you go through like, uh, like, were you wanting to do foster or foster to adopt or you just wanted to do straight adoption or I'm just curious. I might cut this out of the podcast. I'm just really curious. No, no, it's fine. Yeah. So we, so I did, oh, fertility treatments. It was definitely, it was both my husband and I, cause I had ovarian cysts still do. Mm. I, I've had two or three surgeries for them, which apparently I'm also a unicorn. That's not normal. So yeah. cool. Um, <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. So we did fertility treatments for probably almost a year. And I was just like, I just, I can't do the hormones and I just can't do this anymore. And I have always wanted to adopt. And my husband has three adopted cousins. So in his mind, adoption has always been on the table. 
So at first we thought of doing international adoption because we were afraid of doing an open adoption with a birth mother because we had heard horror stories. um, And we thought maybe that would be an easier situation for a child to bond with us. Mm -hmm. Um, So we tried to adopt from Bulgaria. That took two years. And I finally figured out this is not happening. Um, once that happened, I found this agency called Gladney and my husband's nine years older than me. So we were kind of past the point of like, okay, you know what, let's get a five-year-old. Like he's, he was about to be 40 at the time. We were like, let's not get an infant, maybe an older child would be better for us. Anyway, we can skip the diaper situation. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> and so so yeah, we called Gladney, which they're out of Texas, but they work all over the country. And we did, I literally talked to the director and she was like, fill out the paperwork tonight and I will get you in. Cause they only accept so many families at one time. And so we filled out the paperwork that night and the next morning, she's like, get all these documents into me. And then you're going to go to training. And I was so wanting to be a mom. <laughs> they say it takes like six months to get your documents in No. Four weeks. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's done. <laughs> I also had a lot from our Bulgaria adoption that helped. Um, and then, yeah, we started. Our training was, it's 35 hours. And I mean, your first class is on sexual assault and sexual abuse of these kids. And it's like, if you can make it through day one, you're good to go. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's horrifying. Like you cry a lot because you're like, who does this to children? Mm-hmm. And then, um, so we finished our course in July, July or August. And then they told us it could be a six month wait and we got match in November. And then we had our first call in December and we brought him home in January. So literally like four days. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It was That's quick. So cool. yeah. He was meant for you. That's yes, so cool. for sure. He is my husband's mini. For sure. They are the exact wow. same person. <laughs> wow. See, I look alike. People are like, oh, your son looks exactly like your husband. I'm like, oh, I know. It freaks me out every day. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I did that for, I, I don't it was like about four years, but I would, first I worked for the state of Texas and I, I had all of region one. I was the only recruiter mm-hmm. in all of region one, which is like the whole panhandle. So I would just like go drive around trying to find like nice people who I did a lot of work through churches and things like that, Mm -hmm. trying to find people who were interested in foster or foster to adopt and then training them. You know, I did, I was the one who would go through all those trainings that you went through. I would teach all of them and then, and then help do the home studies and uh, get them licensed and all that. And then I moved to a private agency and did just the training portion and, and not the licensing portion for, for a while. So, um, so yeah, I had to teach all those classes and all that, it's but hard. It's, just, it's hard, it's hard to put people through that because they're so innocent when they come in yeah. and then you have to like really jade them with all these like crazy, you know, classes, but it's true. And I mean, especially when it comes to like sexual abuse and kids, there are so many people who are just really not willing to, to take a child that has experienced any kind of sexual abuse just because of, you know, the potential implications, um, with that. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of things that go into determining what's right for your family and all that. And I totally get it, but it was always really sad to me how, um, how left out 
a lot of those kids ended up being because people were just like really scared of that, you know? I think you'll find this interesting. So at Gladney, they pretty much make you agree to being acceptable of some level because they're like, you won't always know until they end up in your home. Yeah. And so they try to educate you that there are so many different degrees of it that if you say no to any level of sexual abuse, you're probably not going to adopt anyone. Yeah. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. what child, I mean, honestly, from my experience, at least, I don't know of a child or it's very, very rare, rare to come across a child that has not had at least some experience with that mm-hmm. that's been in the foster care system. Yeah. It's just because either their home environment or then in the foster care system, yeah. sometimes abuse that happens. So it's just like, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's very sad. And I, I have thought we've thought about, about adopting at some point as well. So I'm just like, always really interested to ask people who have actually done it, you know, that it's, weren't like people that I helped train. It's hard. It like, I was telling, I'm just gonna be very honest. I was telling one of my yeah. friends, I mean, it took me over a year to be even comfortable being a mom yeah. and it took him and I a really long time to fully bond. Mm-hmm. He, and that had so much to do with my own stuff and then his stuff that he had come with. And I would say in the last three months, we've bonded so much and it's just like a completely different relationship. But when you are just constantly trying to bond with a child and you are struggling, but you watch them willingly bond with your spouse, I mean, it kills you daily. Yeah. And you're just like, what is wrong with me? Like, why can't I, like, why can't we have this? And you know, it's, it's a patient thing and eventually they may or may not get there. You know, every kid is different for sure. But I would always be envious of my friends who had children. It was like, you bonded with them immediately. And like, I, like I had to apply for a child and I have background checks and I take classes. And then now that I have a child, it's not like we love each other. Instead, it's like, I have to work 10 times as hard now to prove you can trust me and I'm your mom. So there's, you know, it's, it's hard being an adoptive parent because it, you know, it's not, it, I mean, not that birth is a fairy tale. Birthing a child is not a fairy tale, right? That's so difficult, but it's just a very different bonding experience. You know, the other thing that's hard is it's not an instant love. Like, you know, you know I have no idea who he is when I meet yeah. him. And yeah. not that, I mean, you birth a child, you don't know who they are either, right? Like either yeah. way, two strangers are coming into our homes, right? We don't know who they are. Um, but it's... I feel like because I don't get that chemical love that comes from just having a biological response, I had to, I've had to work really hard to learn how to love him. And so, and that sounds so mean, but if, you know, it's just like meeting a stranger, you're getting to know them. Like you don't fall in love with someone when you first meet them. Um, so that was all, that was hard. And then when you do start falling in love with things about them, then you're rejected. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I don't you know what to do with this. <laughs> but you live here, so okay. <laughs> I guess we're stuck together. Yeah, so I guess um, we're doing, and, and, and you know, yeah. it's funny because looking back, my husband's like, you, you've, I love on our dog. My dog is my first child. I think she's perfect. I love her so much. <laughs> And he's like, our son is so jealous of your relationship with our dog Piper. And I want to be like, cause she loved me back. Like I needed her. 
<laughs> it's, you know, it's to no fault of his own. And luckily they love each other now. So, but yeah, no, it's, it's a very different learning experience. I really appreciate you being like open and, and upfront about that because, you know, that was the experience that I, that a lot of the people that, that I worked with had, you know, and I feel like that's more common than not, but yet we have this sort of like very idealized idea of what adoption looks like and how you're just going to like immediately like bond with this baby and like, or this child and, and love them from like day one. And it's like, I mean, even I've had, I have friends too, who um, they didn't bond with their babies that they birthed themselves for months, you know, like some people don't bond with their baby till their baby smiles at them. Like there are all these different chemical things that, that happen. But I mean, we should all just, we should just be a little bit more honest about this stuff because motherhood is just hard in general, but like, you know, you, it's okay to not have it. It's your own story is unique and, and it's okay for it to be unique. You know, it doesn't have to follow some Disney, idea of what adoption it, looks like, you know, like you're it, his mom. And yeah. It's, and it's, you know, I have to prove to him every day he can trust me and, you know, that's just become my norm now. So it doesn't feel yeah. hard, but it used to, it used to be like, this is the hardest thing in the world. And then I always felt like I should be so grateful that I'm a mom now because of everything we've gone through. And, but like, it's still a struggle. Like it's okay to want something and then finally get it. And it still be really hard. And I think people don't understand that maybe. And then during the pandemic, like I lost almost all of my clients because they couldn't afford me. So then I had to go through the process of grieving my business life while trying to convince this kid, I love him and I'm his mom. Um, But I mean, all of that on the other side, it's interesting because it really changed my focus into what I want to do. And I finally came to the realization that I love being a mom, but that's not enough for me. Thank you so much to Jana for being a part of today's episode of An Amber Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I will put the contact information for Jana below so that you can go and follow her on social media. I'm actually going to stop today's podcast right here and leave the rest of this great conversation for next week because it was really long. Um, but next week, we'll be talking about our issues surrounding being working mothers um, and nutritionists, some of the things that we face and deal with. Um, some of the things that we love about it and some of our struggles. So I hope you'll come back and join us for that. We will also be talking a lot about estrogen dominance and some other health issues that her and I both share. So uh, that should be interesting for those of you with hormonal imbalances. So I hope you'll come back for part two. Um, If you have a second, please leave a review for the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast out to new listeners. And thank you so much for joining today. Hope you have a really good week and we'll talk soon. Bye. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.